Chapters 37 and 38 of Love's Bitterest Cup. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter 37. The Tomb's Evidence. They crossed the churchyard again and entered the carriage. Jonah mounted the box. New drive the gentlefolks to Teesta to park, and ruined by the musclemen. I'll cut across through to brush and speak to a keeper, and meet you there. It will be all right, maister. With this the sexton struck off through the bushes that stood between the church and the manor-house. The old carriage left the churchyard by the way it had come, and entered once more upon the lane, and, turning eastward, drove on between green hedges for about a quarter of a mile, when it reached a massive gate of oak and iron, guarded by a porter's lodge of stone in the same strong style of building as the sexton's cottage at the churchyard wall. A tidy woman came out of the lodge, and seeing the old carriage, with Jonah on the box, she smiled and nodded, and at once opened wide the gates. "'Anyone at the manor-house, Mistress Dillon?' inquired Jonah. "'No, a lad. None but to housekeeper and to servants,' replied the woman, curtsying to the gentlefolks, as the old carriage passed through the gate and entered the long avenue leading through the park to the house. This avenue was shaded by rows of gigantic old oak trees on each side, whose branches met and intermingled overhead, so arching the way with a thick roof of foliage. "'Oh, what a beautiful, what a majestic vista!' exclaimed Wynnette, with more enthusiasm than she usually bestowed upon any object. "'It is very fine,' said her father. "'There is nothing finer in their way than these old English parks.' Presently the carriage turned with the avenue in a curve, and suddenly drew up before the manor-house, which until that moment had been concealed by the lofty trees around it. Anglesia Manor was a huge oblong building of some gray stone, supported at its corners by four square towers, each further strengthened by four turrets, all of which added to the architectural beauty of the edifice. There were three rows of lofty windows in the front. The lowest row was divided in the middle by massive oaken doors, opening upon a stone platform reached by seven stone steps. Oh, breathed Wynnette, as she gazed upon the fine old house, to think that such a palace as this should be the inheritance of such a villain as he. The driver turned and looked at her with astonishment and some indignation. Then, checking himself, he said in perfect simplicity, "'Ooh, you don't know, young lady, I reckon. This place belongs to our landlord, Colonel Angus Anglesia.' Then, drawing up his horse, he inquired, "'Will you get out and go through the house, sir?' "'For heaven's sake, uncle, no, not yet.' Let us go directly to the mausoleum, and see the date that is on the tomb, and solve this doubt that is intolerable, pleaded Lee. Very well, my dear boy, very well. Kirby, drive at once to the mausoleum. We will see the house later, said Mr. Force. The man touched his hat and started his horse. They turned into a grass-grown road winding in and out among magnificent oaks, that seemed the growth of many centuries, and that were probably once parts of the primeval forest of Britain. Presently they came upon the mausoleum. It stood between two fine oak trees and in front of a third, which formed its background. It was built in the form of a Grecian temple and surrounded by a silver-plated iron railing. The carriage stopped, and our tourists got out. Lee pushed on impetuously, opened the little gate, and stepped up to read the inscription on the marble. He read it attentively, stopped, gazed at it, read it again, and then turned away in silence. "'What is it, Lee?' anxiously inquired Abel Force. "'It is—read it, uncle,' replied the young man, breaking down and turning away. Mr. Force entered the enclosure, and read the inscription on the mausoleum. "'Mary, beloved wife of Angus Anglesia, 
died August 25th, 18 blank, aged 49. Mr. Force turned away without a word. Wynnette entered the enclosure, read the inscription, and came out in perfect silence. The driver of the old carriage and the sexton of the church, who had only just now kept his promise and come up to join the party, stood a little apart, not understanding the emotion of the strangers, attributed it all to sympathy with the bereaved husband. "'Ooh, I maister, it was a sorrowful day when her ladyship departed this loife,' said Jonah Kirby, shaking his head. "'A sorrowful day. I was at a funeral, as in duty bound. To squire were first mourner, and had to be present, though he were far from fit to stand. Lard Middlemore, his father-in-law, held to hold him up. I never saw to squire from the day of the funeral until the day he took to train for Lunnon, when he were going abroad to furrin parts.' and then he had gone away to nothing but skin and bone. He came back about a year ago, but he couldn't abear the place, and went away again. Ah, poor gentleman! Lee and his uncle looked at each other in wonder. Was this Angus Anglesia of whom the man was speaking, who had reared this monument to the memory of his beloved wife? Was this Angus Anglesia whom everyone praised, and yet who had gone abroad and deceived, betrayed, and robbed and deserted the poor Californian widow? And how, indeed, could he have married the Californian woman in St. Sebastian on the 1st of August, as Lee had unquestionable evidence that he had done, and be present at the death of his wife in the English manor house on the 25th of the same month, as these people declared that he had been, and again meet the Force family at Niagara early in the following September? It might have been just possible by almost incredibly rapid transits. Had Colonel Inglesia been abroad just before his wife's death? inquired Abel Force of the driver who knew more about the affairs of Anglewood than the sexton, because the former had always lived at Angleton, and the latter had only lately come to the parish. Ooh, ay, maister, that was the pity o it. The squire had been away a month or more. He come home only a week before her ladyship deed, and he went away again after the funeral. He come back again a year ago, but he couldn't abear to stay, so he put up to musclemen to her memory and went his way again. Ah, poor gentleman! He were a good gentleman, and a wise and a brave one. "'I cannot make it out,' murmured Abelforce. "'The man is drawing a long bow, Papa. That's all there is in it. I mean, he is telling romances in praise of his landlord. There cannot be a word of truth in what he says,' said Wynnette. Lee said nothing. He seemed utterly crushed by the blow that had fallen on him. The carriage driver seemed not to hear or understand the murmured talk between the father and daughter, but when it ceased he touched his hat and asked, "'Will I drive you to to Manor House, new maester?' "'Yes, if you please,' returned Mr. Force, as he helped Wynnette to climb up into the dilapidated trap. "'And what do your honour think of to musclemen, maester?' inquired the sexton, coming up and taking off his cap. "'It is a very fine specimen of both architecture and sculpture,' replied Mr. Force. The sexton smiled satisfaction, bowed, and withdrew. "'I am puzzled, Lee, and I think by going through the Manor House I may come to understand things better.' whispered Mr. Force to his young companion. But Lee was too much depressed to answer, or to take any further interest in the events of the day. They turned and drove back through the beautiful park to the front of the manor house, where the carriage drew up. Chapter 38. Tale Told by the Portraits If you will give me leave, maester, I'll go ruined and speak to Mistress Bolton, to housekeeper, and get her to coom and open to great door, said Jonah Kirby, as he got down from his seat and struck into a flagged walk that led to the rear of the house. "'Lee, Lee, don't look so downhearted, dear boy. 
"'Remember, come what may, my daughter shall never be the wife of Angus Anglesia.' "'Come, come, cheer up, lad,' said Abel Force, clapping his young companion on the back. But Lee's only answer was a profound sigh. "'I think the best and shortest way out of our difficulty will be to go back to America, have that man prosecuted for bigamy and robbery, and sent to the state prison, and then have him divorced, if indeed he has any claim whatever on Odalite. And I don't see why you don't take that way,' said Wynnette. "'Because, my dearest dear,' answered her father, "'to prosecute the man would be to bring our darling Odalite's name "'into too much publicity. "'And as for divorce, the very word is an offence to right-minded people. "'It is better than—' "'But whatever Wynnette was about to say "'was cut short by the loud, harsh turning of a key "'and the noisy opening of the great door of Anglewood Manor House. "'Jonah Kirby appeared, accompanied by altogether "'the very largest woman our travellers had ever seen in their lives, "'even at a travelling circus.' She appeared to be about forty years old, and was dressed in a very full, light blue calico skirt, and blue spask of the same, that made her look even larger than she was. She wore a high-crowned book muslin cap, with a broad blue ribbon around it. She carried in her hand a formidable bunch of keys. "'She's fearfully and wonderfully huge, Papa, and she will expect a crown, and maybe half a guinea for showing the house,' said Wynnette in a low tone." By this time, Jonah Kirby had come down the steps and up to the side of the carriage. "'Mrs. Bolton, Meister, and she'll show to hoose with pleasure. She always likes to oblige to gentlefolks,' she bid me say. "'Papa, it must be half a guinea, and don't you forget,' whispered Wynnette, as she gave her hand to Kirby and allowed him to help her out of the carriage. Mr. Force and Lee followed, and they all walked up the steps, to be met by the enormous woman in blue, with many curtsies. She led them at once into a vast stone hall, whose walls were hung with ancient armor, battle-axes, crossbows, lances, and other insignia of war, and with horns, bugles, antlers, weapons, and trophies of the chase, and whose tessellated floor was covered with the skins of wild animals. From the center of this hall a magnificent flight of stairs ascended, in large spiral circles, to the stained-glass skylight in the roof. There were handsome doors of solid oak on either side, Mrs. Bolton paused in the middle of the hall and said, "'The doors on the right lead into the justice room and the long dining room, those on the left into the ballroom, which is the largest room, three times told in the house. There is nothing on this floor very interesting except the antique furniture and the curiously carved woodwork of the chimney-pieces and doors.' She spoke like a guidebook, but presently added, "'Some gentlefolk, if they have a heap of time, like to look through them.' but many prefer the picture-gallery and the library and the drawing-rooms, which are all on the floor above and all very handsome. "'We will go upstairs first, if you please. Later, if we have time, we will see the rooms down here,' said Abel Force. The housekeeper led the way upstairs to the next landing, where they came out upon the hall, whose walls were hung with antique tapestry, and whose oaken floor was covered here and there with Persian rugs. On every side handsome mahogany double doors led into apartments— before every door lay a rich Persian rug. Mrs. Bolton opened a door on the left. "'The picture gallery, ladies and gentlemen,' she said, using her formula, though there was but one lady present. They entered a long, lofty room lighted from the roof. The walls were hung with many pictures, so dark and dim with age that even the good light failed to make their meanings intelligible to the spectators. Yet these were considered the most valuable in the whole collection, and the housekeeper, with great pride, gave the history of each, in something like this style. 
Martyrdom of St. Stephen, ladies and gentlemen, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in the year of our Lord, 1480, purchased at Milan in 1700 for 5,000 guineas by Ralph d'Inglesia of Englewood. A very rare picture, no copy of it being in existence. Our party looked up and saw in a heavy gilded frame, about five feet square, a very dark, murky canvas with a small smirch in the middle. Nothing more. This was only a sample of a score of other priceless paintings, invisible as to forms and unintelligible as to meanings, which the housekeeper introduced to the visitors with much pride in the showing. "'Now, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the family portraits,' said Mrs. Bolton, passing under a lofty archway adorned by the Anglesia arms, and leading the visitors into another compartment of the same gallery. "'Here, ladies and gentlemen, is a portrait of Kenneth de Anglesia, year 800, very old.' Our party looked at it, and thought it was very old, a long brown smudge crowned with an oval yellow smudge, all in a very dark ground, and supposed to represent a human form, no more. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is Ethis de Anglesia, year 950, also old. Again, the visitors agreed with the housekeeper. The figure was old and almost invisible. And so she went through a dozen or more of these earlier family portraits, and came down at last to later periods, to crusaders in the reign of Richard the Lionhearted, by gradations down to courtiers in the reign of Elizabeth, to cavaliers in the reigns of the unfortunate Stuarts, to gallants in the reigns of the Georges, and finally down to the ladies and gentlemen of the reign of Queen Victoria. Here, sir, is an excellent portrait of our present master, Colonel Angus Anglesia, and of his late lamented lady, said the housekeeper, pausing before two full-length portraits that hung side by side, like companion pictures at the end of the gallery. Our travellers paused before the pictures and gazed at them in silence for some moments. The portrait of Colonel Anglesia was a very striking likeness. All our party recognized it at once as such. But how was this? Here was the form, face, and complexion, perfect to a curve of figure, perfect to a shade of color. Yet the expression was different. For whereas the expression of Anglesia's face, as our friends had known it, was either joyous, morose, or defiant, the character of this face was grave, thoughtful, and benevolent. Yet it was certainly the portrait of Angus Anglesia. Wynnette perceived the perplexity on the brows of her companions and whispered, "'A two-faced, double-dealing as well as double-dyed villain, Papa, a sanctimonious hypocrite at home, and a brawling ruffian abroad.' "'I should scarcely take this to be the face of a hypocrite, my dear, or of any other than of a good, wise, and brave man. Yet—yet yet it is all very strange.' Then they looked at the portrait of Lady Mary Anglesia, at which they had only glanced before. It was the counterfeit presentment of a lady whose beauty, or rather the special character of whose beauty, at once riveted attention. It was that of a tall, well-formed, though rather delicate woman, with sweet, pale, oval face, tender, serious brown eyes, and soft, rippling brown hair that strayed in little careless ringlets about her forehead and temples, adding to the exquisite sweetness and pathos of the whole presence. "'What a beautiful, beautiful creature! "'What lovely, lovely eyes!' breathed Wynnette, gazing at the picture. "'Yes, young lady,' said the housekeeper, "'and as good and wise as she was beautiful. "'And when the lovely eyes closed on this world, "'be sure they opened in heaven. "'And when the beautiful form was laid in the tomb, "'all the light seemed to have gone out of this world for us. "'It nearly killed the master. "'And no wonder. "'No wonder,' said Mrs. Bolton, drawing a large pocket-handkerchief that would have answered for a small tablecloth from her pocket and wiping her eyes. Again Abel Force and Leonidas looked at each other. 
"'Ah, yes, they were a handsome pair,' said the housekeeper, with a sigh that raised her mighty bosom as the wind raises the ocean. "'A very handsome pair, and the parting of them has been nigh the death of the colonel,' she added, as she replaced her handkerchief in her pocket. "'And yet I have heard that he married again while he was abroad,' Mr. Force could not refrain from saying. "'He!' exclaimed Mrs. Bolton, in a tone of indignant astonishment. "'Yes, there is no law against a widower marrying, is there?' replied Abel Force, quietly. "'He, he marry again. Oh, sir, you are mistaken. He was more likely to die than to marry. Whoever told you so, sir, begging your pardon, told a most heinous falsehood. I really hope he never did marry again. He never did, sir, and he never will.' He is true to her memory, and he lives only for their son, who has at Eton. Now, sir, shall I show you the library and the drawing-rooms? Mr. Force bowed, and with his party followed the housekeeper from the picture-gallery to the hall, and through that to the drawing-rooms, into which they only looked, for the apartment was fitted up in modern style, and all the furniture shrouded in brown holland. The library was more interesting and contained many rare black-letter tomes, into which Abel Force would have liked to look, had time allowed. The sun was setting, and it was growing dusk in this grand and gloomy mansion. "'We must go now, I think, my dear,' said Mr. Force, in a low voice, to his daughter. Wynnette drew him quite away from the group into the light of the great oriel window of the library, and whispered, "'Not a crown, nor a half-sov, but a guinea, papa, a whole guinea for all those thundering bouncers,' I mean those romances she has told us about the jolly old smoke-dried window-shades and fire-screens hung up in frames for pictures of the ancestors, and called Kenneths and Euthuses and things. Why, Papa, those couldn't have been portraits. There were no painters in Britain at the time those are said to have lived. And then about the Leonardo da Vinci picture. If he ever painted that, it would be in one of the great art galleries of the world, not in a private collection. Give her a guinea, Papa. She can't afford to lie so much for less." "'My dear, the woman only repeats what she has heard,' said Mr. Force. They rejoined Lee and the housekeeper. Mr. Force thanked the good woman for her attention, and left a generous remuneration in her hand. She curtsied, and then saw them downstairs. In the hall below she pointed out the full suits of armor worn by this or that knight in such or such a battle, and the antlers of the stag killed by this or that huntsman in such or such a chase.' "'Would your honor now like to look into the ballroom, or the long dining-room, or justice-room?' "'No, thank you. It is getting late. We have to return to Angleton,' replied Mr. Force. And then, each of the party, in turn, again thanked the housekeeper for the pleasure she had given them, and took leave of her. End of chapter 38